dark days are done and the bright days are here. My sunny one shines so sincere. Sunny one so true. Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Welcome to John's Barber, John Barber's World, yes. This is J.P. Satilli sitting in for John, who is currently on assignment. Don't worry, folks, he will be back in two weeks. Uh, I'm just doing a temporary fill-in for him. Well, folks, it is Memorial Day, which is right there with the 4th of July as perhaps the most quintessentially all-American of our national holidays. It marks the end of the school year. It is the semi-official kickoff of summer. It sparks the search for a trashy beach novel to distract us while we cook ourselves in the ever-hotter sun. And first and foremost, it is a celebration of the right of Americans to express their freedom by indulging their appetites. And it is a strangely appropriate celebration, too, because it is ostensibly the solemn day America sets aside to ponder the sacrifice of its fallen soldiers, who, the saying goes, died to protect our freedom. Yet, oddly enough, we do that by watching one of a dozen baseball games, drinking one of the hundreds of brands of beer that now crowd the perpetually chilled shelves found in most neighborhood supermarkets, and, in an almost ritualistic fashion, we dutifully gather around open flames to roast animals in backyard barbecues. If you were to transport that same scene to the ancient world of Imperial Rome, it could easily be seen by modern historians as a kind of sacred ceremony emblematic of an imperial civic religion, a sort of communal sacrament to acknowledge the glory the gods bestowed on an epic empire as it conquered the known world and gathered its riches. And nearly two and a half centuries of American war making has done just that. The U.S. stands alone with a globe-spanning empire of 787 overseas bases, lily pad deployments, and host country facilities in 88 nations and territories. And, not coincidentally, Americans consume well over a quarter of the world's resources, despite being about 4.4% of its total population. Let's face it, we are a warlike people who've reaped the benefits of a global empire. The engine of this empire is, of course, war. And appropriately enough, today's show will look at one war America is currently trying to avoid on the Korean Peninsula, and another it can't seem to quit in the beleaguered bombing range, also known as Afghanistan. Our first guest, journalist and author Tim Shark, is going to do what he does better than almost anyone in the English language press, and that's get us up to speed on the situation on the Korean Peninsula. Tim is perhaps America's leading English language reporter on what is happening inside South Korea because, unlike most of the experts you see and hear on cable news, he actually travels to the peninsula and talks to Koreans, including current South Korean President Moon Jae-in, who he interviewed last year as Moon successfully campaigned for the presidency, a win that eventually led to the newly elected president's unprecedented push for peace with the North. In fact, Tim grew up in Japan and South Korea, has been writing about Korean affairs, military affairs, and intelligence issues for decades. 
You can find his work in The Nation, The Baffler, The Daily Beast, Mother Jones, Asia Times, among many others. And you can often find him unpacking the latest developments on Democracy Now! And, geez, Tim, there are a lot of ands here. And he is the author of Spies for Hire, The Secret World of Intelligence Outsourcing, which you can, of course, find on Amazon. And, oh, yeah, I think he really, really digs Bob Dylan. Thank you for joining us today, Tim. Welcome aboard. Thank you. Thanks for the introduction. <laughs> My pleasure. First, can you get us up to speed on the latest developments in the on-again, off-again, on-again, could-be-on-again, off-again summit? What's going on now? Where do we stand? Well, let's see. The other day, I was just finishing a story, ready to post it at The Nation, that Moon Jae-in, the president of South Korea, had been in Washington and met with President Trump. And Trump had said that you know the meeting on June 12th with Kim Jong-un may be delayed, but at the end of the day, Moon said that everything's looking good, and he went home back to Korea saying that the June 12th meeting was on. Well, right after he arrived, uh, apparently one of John Bolton, the national security advisor to Trump, came running into Trump in the morning uh, with a statement that a North Korean diplomat had posted on their state media that was very, very critical of Vice President Pence and very critical of Bolton himself uh, for pushing what they called this Libya option for Korea, for North Korea, which North Koreans see as basically, you know, forcing them to denuclearize and then uh, having a regime change uh, after that, which is what happened in Libya. And uh, so when Trump apparently heard that someone had written something nasty about Vice President Pence and John Bolton, he got very angry and he decided to cancel the meeting and he dictated a letter to John Bolton and uh, the meeting was off. So my story was about ready to break in the nation and all of a sudden I get this headline that the meeting is canceled. So then I rewrote the whole story. Uh, it looked like the meeting was gonna be canceled. By the end of that day, Trump was back stepping once again and was saying, uh, actually the meeting might be on and then you know, within uh, 24 hours, uh, Moon Jae-in and Kim Jong-un met at the border uh, at Panmunjom and uh, just, you know, made, made a, said they were going to double their effort to make sure this meeting with Trump happened. And the meeting is now back on. And now we have uh, U.S. diplomats and some intelligence people and people from the White House actually in Panmunjom on the north side meeting with the North Korean government about setting up the meeting and what the agenda is going to be. And this is the ambassador so, from, to the Philippines, right, who is leading the uh, delegation. Yes. Right. That's right. He's a, and he's a Korean-American, and he's dealt with uh, North Korea before. So, And he's negotiated with North Korea before. So that's a very long way of getting into it. But, you know, it just gives you an idea of kind of the topsy-turvy nature of what's happening. But right now, it looks like on June 12, unless they change the date for some reason, that uh, President Trump is going to meet with Kim Jong-un in Singapore. Now, if you don't follow Tim on Twitter, I highly recommend it. It's at Timothy S. And the reason why is that he is giving you a real-time update on things that are going on with this coming coming meeting in Singapore, the what's going on inside South Korea. And that's really, Tim, where I would like to go with you, because I, th I think from what I've read of your coverage and the way you've approached it, you've tried to root the story in the hopes, the aspirations, and the future of the Korean people, because we have these two tracks, right? We have the larger geopolitical track, which 
I think has a lot to do with China and the United States posturing. And then you have what's going on in, on the Korean peninsula between the Korean people themselves. And can you explain the, the two different sides of that and, and what's going on inside Korea, the Korean with the Korean people itself? Well, I try, yeah, like I, like you said, I, I try to write from the perspective of Korea. You know, like the whole idea that South Korea exists is is barely even acknowledged in the U.S. media. They write about Korea as if it's just you know the United States versus North Korea with this loyal ally South Korea kind of on the side, and it doesn't really matter what South Korea does or doesn't do. And this, of course, is ridiculous. Uh, but you know the. You know, for the Koreas, they've been divided for many years, you know, for 70 years about. And uh, they had a terrible war that they never want to repeat again. And a million or four million people uh, died, most of them civilians, most of them at the hands of U.S. bombing. And so, you know, they want to avoid war at any cost. And as you taught, said at the top of the hour, Moon Jae-in was elected partly on the basis of, you know, trying to make the peace with North Korea. He ran on a platform uh, saying that he wanted to, you know, essentially revive what was called the sunshine policy of previous progressive presidents, Kim Dae-jung, No Mu-hyun, who had, you know, had engagement, who engaged with the North and, and developed economic projects with them and really, you know, defused a lot of the tensions between the two. And then after 10 years of, of that, of, of, of kind of detente North and South Korea, there was a period of conservative rule uh, where everything went backwards and, and hostilities got, got worse. And, uh, you know, we know what happened in the last few years where uh, it just kind of fell apart. And then, you know, the, the North Koreans uh, felt that they were under siege from the U.S. military and its allies, South Korea, as well as Japan, and were fast building, you know, their nuclear program, their their nuclear missiles and uh pretty much accomplished building a ICBM that can hit the United States as a deterrence. And once they did that, they decided they could negotiate from a position of strength. That's a crucial point. You said as a deterrence because the U.S. media uh, postulates that it's a threat. It's not a deterrence. It's actually an offensive threat. Can you make a differentiation there? Explain the difference. Well, you know... Looking outside of the Korean War, which was really which was a civil war between North and South, and of course the U.S. was you know you know was deeply engaged, and then China was deeply engaged. But outside of that, Korea has never invaded anybody. You know, you know, Korea has never invaded another country. There's a reason uh, why it was it, called the Hermit Kingdom, right? Right, and you know, it's it's been the victim of invasions. It's been the victim of colonization by Japan. Uh, you know, it's it's been the victim of intervention by the United States. And so it's never invaded anybody. And, you know, North Korea, since the end of the Korean War, the Korean War ended in an armistice in 1953. The U.S. began introducing nuclear weapons, uh, violating the armistice. Very soon after that armistice was signed, those nuclear weapons were in South Korea. The U.S. had them in South Korea until 1991. And then withdrew them, but they're still surrounded by nuclear-armed ships and planes that are based in Japan, Guam, Okinawa. And so, uh, you know, and the U.S. has made threats on numerous times, not just Trump. You know, Obama made similar kinds of threats a few times. And uh, there's also been lots of open talk of regime change and trying to force the North Korean regime to collapse. And uh, so there's been, you know, they've seen themselves— 
as being threatened by these you know, U.S. military positioning in Asia, but also by these big joint military exercises the U.S. holds twice a year with South Korea. And so they built nuclear weapons to protect themselves because they saw what happened in Iraq. They saw what uh, happened in Libya, and they figured, well, if, if we can develop our nuclear capability and have that kind of ability to, you know, fight back if we're attacked, then we, we will not be attacked. And uh, th that was the calculation they made. Uh, and they see this, they see this as a deterrent, uh, just like most countries, just about every country that does have nuclear weapons sees them as a deterrent because other countries are going to be less inclined to attack you or undermine you if they know that if they do anything like that, they would be hit by these terrible kinds of weapons. And so it's not unlike other what you know, the United States as any other country has developed that kind of arsenal. Uh, so, you know, I think it's taken a lot for, you know, American media uh, and, and experts, so-called, to, to understand that uh, and to see that that's, you know, what they're, what they're after. And so, you know, they put all these resources in North Korea into uh, military, into nuclear and missile technology. And, you know, for the last few years, Kim Jong-un, the leader, has been talking about putting more resources, and he's actually been doing this, you know, trying to expand the civilian economy and, you know, building all kinds of infrastructure to, 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 to do that. And so, you know, I think he, he wants to, you know, open it up in, in a way that maybe Vietnam has done in the past and even China has done in the past as a socialist communist country, letting in some kind of, you know, market economy into its, into its centralized economy. Uh, centralized kind of socialist economy. So I think that's what's going on. But I think it reflects the will of the Korean people, both in South Korea, where about 85 percent now support Moon in, in public in polls and really back his engagement policies. And I and I do believe that uh, North Koreans, you know, feel the same way. They, they want to end the state of war and move on. Well, what do you think is ultimately motivating Kim Jong-un? Is it uh, survival of the regime? Is it this idea that you're postulating that they might want to open up uh, along the lines of Vietnam to try and develop the economy? Uh, do you have any sense of, of what his, his modus operandi is here? Well, of course, you know, North Korea is different than most socialist states because it has a sort of hereditary uh, leadership, right? I mean, his grandfather was one of the founders of North Korea and leadership when he died, it passed to his son. And then he was around for about 20 years and it passed to Kim Jong-un, the, the, the young, his young son, youngest son. And um, I think, I think that it's, it's both trying to, you know, maintain uh, the, the, the structure this, you know the regime structure as as is, uh, but it's also to maintain the, the country's sovereignty. I think that's a that's a huge part of it. And North, you know North Korea was almost destroyed during the Korean War, and they rebuilt after that. And then they had you know twenty years of really you know terrible economic uh, conditions because of various you know reasons behind it, including natural causes like droughts, and then losing cheap oil when the Soviet Union collapsed and these all kind of things came together when their economy really 
uh, almost did collapse, actually, in the late 90s when there was mass starvation. They've come back from that. Um, but, you know, the people in Korea have been through a lot. So I think his, his goal is, you know, well, to sustain his government and regime and to keep South North Korea intact as a sovereign country and to have peaceful relations with North South Korea instead of the kind of hostility that there's been for the last few decades. As negotiations go forward, as they look like they're going to go forward, there are two interesting things that I noted. One was a, st a story in my survey uh, pre prepping for this that there was some sense that President Moon would actually be invited to join the talks, which seems kind of strange to the uninitiated. Why would Moon not have been in the talks in the first place since it's South Korea, right? Which tells you something about the nature of, the, of how the talks have been uh, constructed up to this point, with the United States seeming like it's the most interested partner vis-a-vis -vis North Korea and not South Korea, which I, which seems, I would assume, you think is a mistake. Um, I wonder if you can comment on that. And then, as these talks go forward, if you could follow up, what role do you think human rights inside North Korea should play as a part of any kind of negotiated deal? Okay, uh, so let's, let's go to, you know, um, the last thing. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I think, you know, human rights is clearly a problem, a uh, serious problem in, in North Korea. I think human rights, you know, has been a serious problem in, in South Korea. Uh, and, you know, still have, there's still some issues there that, that, that make it uh, undemocratic. Uh, but, but for the most part, you know, any kind of human rights problem is in the North with these prison camps they have and the various the intense police state they have. Uh, and, and, but I, you know, I think that it's kind of like the situation in Northern Ireland, you know, when, when you have a state of war, human rights, it's bad for human rights. And I think that's when you get a peace, it can improve the situation for human rights. And I, and I think that uh, it would open up a space to be able to talk about it. And, and, but I think that, you first have you first have to have a state of peace, a state of not you know not having war and a constant fear of war, to alleviate that kind of you know political repression that happens and to curb it, uh, because there's all these suspicions that you know you are working for the imperial powers of Jap of the United States or Japan if you're a dissenter, and I think if you have peace that could that could change that kind of dynamic, but I do think that. It's not something that can be brought up immediately in negotiations. The first thing has to be settled is to, to end the state of war and to have a peace treaty and then, you know, move on from there. And if, if they're going to actually denuclearize, there has to be a whole system set up for, um, you know, verification and making sure that, you know, inter international inspectors are allowed in and they know where the material is, they know where the nuclear weapons are, and they can, they can determine where they are and that they're under control and all of that, you know, that's going to be a major, a major negotiation. So I think once you have normalized relations, you can bring up issues like this, uh, you know. So I think it's a, it's not a secondary issue, but it's an issue that really is underneath the, beneath the primary issue of resolving the state of war. And, and perhaps to interrelated to it, as you're saying, it's interrelated yeah, to the state of war. It's interrelated. And, you know, like in, in South Korea... 
you know, starting in 1972, when the North first North-South meetings actually did happen, uh, within a couple of years in South Korea, the the repression and the and the dictatorship really tightened, and because the idea was if we're going to compete and we're going to you know talk with North Korea, then we have to have complete control here and we have to be a, grow as a great nation. So we cannot allow you know dissent and we can and we have to have like one mind as we approach this. And the repression in South Korea really increased as the using the excuse of moving toward you know negotiations and and so. Uh, it, it became much harder for 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 anybody to to operate in in, a, in a de- the, the democratic space. Really tightened in South Korea, and the and the use and the you know the anti North Korea rhetoric was used to go after dissidents for you know a long long time for decades. And and so you know I th- I think that that will that will change, um, and that's changed in South Korea, but that's what needs to change in North Korea. And so, like, let's want to rephrase your first question then about about the process. Well, how about this? Let's because we're we're. I know you have to bug out to another interview. Let's get to the eight hundred pound gorilla in the room. It seems to me that denuclearization is somehow going to have to be linked to demilitarization because the 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 gorilla there on the peninsula is the what the 22 to 24,000 US troops stationed in South Korea mm-hmm. and the pre- that the presence of those troops seems to me directly proportional to the to the presence of of nuclear weapons in North Korea what are the prospects of a pullback of troops could president moon sustain his position by and and see the sort of the slow phasing out of this Protective umbrella of new of U.S. troops. How 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 would that play out? Is it even possible for the for those troops to be removed? Because it seems to me that would be on China's wish list to have those troops removed from the peninsula. Well, strangely enough, the the Chinese have a seem to have a tougher line on this than North Korea itself does. I mean, you know, even in recent months, uh, North Korea has said through its negotiations with South Korea that they might accept U.S. Forces in South Korea for a certain amount of time after a peace agreement was signed, and you know what I've heard is that they view North they view U.S. forces once in the context of a peace you know of a peace treaty and the, and the state of war is over, they they view view U.S. troops in a sort of different context. They view it as like possible you know weight against uh, Chinese moves. Wow, they so see- that would be a jiu-jitsu move whereby the umbrella actually spreads over North Korea as North Korea moves well, from being a client of China and starts to become a client of the United States or a relationship? Well, no, no it wouldn't no, necessarily, wouldn't necessarily mean that, but it may, they, they might not object to U.S. forces being on the peninsula. They don't want to have nuclear weapons pointed at them. They would like to remove that nuclear umbrella uh, and and that the U.S. has, you know, supposedly protecting Japan and South Korea. But I think that issue of U.S. forces and U.S. troops uh, is a long-term issue. And I think that Americans would be, might be surprised at the North Korean, uh, you know, view on this. And it's not it's not determined. It's also an extremely sensitive issue within South Korea. It's very difficult uh, to bring it up. Uh, a lot of people, especially older people, just see that, you know, U.S. forces is sacrosanct. And when you bring it up in a political context, uh, it's 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 very 
it's it's hard. And also, you know, there still is, like I said before, there's remnants of of dictatorial laws. There's a national security law in South Korea that makes it illegal to say anything that's sort of along the lines of what North Korea says. And so when if their line is like, you know, U.S. troops should get out, then not South Koreans say that they can get they can get arrested. They can get in trouble politically. So it's not an easy issue, but I don't think it's going to be a big part of what happens in Singapore. I think that it's a more long-term issue. Uh, but, you know, I always ask, how long are American troops going to be in Korea? 100 years? 200 years? I mean, there's got to be an end to this. You know, we can't be, you know, having forces everywhere all the time, you know, for, for what, a thousand years? I mean, it's ridiculous. So at some point, you know, we have to look at this and, you know, if they're not necessary for protecting the national interests, they should they should be withdrawn. And so, so there's ultimately another constituency is the U.S. national security state, because if peace suddenly breaks out on the Korean Peninsula, the predicate for having the troops there may begin to evaporate. Right, exactly. And also, the, the, you know, some of the troops that the U.S. has in, in Okinawa, their rationale will be yes. removed, too. Uh, like, you know, the, the one base in Okinawa, U.S. base, Futenma, the only, its only purpose is to send Marines in in case North Korea invades South Korea and get to, get to Seoul before the North Koreans do. And so if there's peace and there's no chance of an invasion, then those troops aren't needed in Japan either. You know, so there's lots of ramifications to this that can go way beyond, that go beyond Korea. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot to deal with, but I think the most important thing is getting to a peace, peace agreement. Well, peace thank treaty. you. I know you got to go, Tim. Thanks for your insights. I really appreciate your time. I hope we can uh, do this again sometime soon. I'd like to get your insights after the uh, the sure. meeting in Singapore. And uh, as you leave, final quick 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 statement: Are you bullish or bearish on <laughs> the, on the outcome in the next let's say next six to eight weeks? I'm very optimistic, actually. Uh, I think there's going to be. An agreement. I think the Koreas are determined to make this happen, and I think that no matter what the U.S. wants, you know, the Koreas are going to move forward on their peace uh, peace process. But I think obviously both China and the United States have to sign, have to be part of signing any kind of peace treaty because they're the ones who signed the armistice, along with North Korea. So, so you know, they have to be involved. But I think that it, I'm I'm optimistic that there could be. Uh, a, a decent agreement reached that'll that'll you know both sides will 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 see will benefit from it and finally and we, will ben we, we will benefit from it and, and korea will benefit uh, and we'll benefit. finally have the end of the korean war which is a positive note here on memorial day tim thanks for joining us and folks after the break i will be back with scott horton to talk about the forever war in afghanistan thank you tim thank you so much Hello, this is John Barber telling you about the long-running hit TV series Criminal Minds, now in its 13th year. Criminal Minds explores the work of talented FBI profilers who seek to unravel crime cases through behavioral profiling. Follow the efforts and lives of these elite profilers as they analyze the nation's most dangerous criminal minds in an effort to anticipate their next moves before they strike again. Criminal Minds airs Wednesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 Central. A must-see. Don't miss it. Bye now.
Hi, I'm Richard Valzer. This is the great BBS Radio. Thank you for that smile upon your face. Oh, sunny. Hi, this is John Barber. You may remember me as the co-host, producer, and creator of Real People, America's first reality show or most recently as the writer-director of what's been called the definitive documentary on JFK's murder, The Last Word on the Assassination. Now I'm doing a show every other Monday from 5 to 6 Pacific Time on BBS. You'll hear provocative views, unreported news, and film reviews from me with outstanding guests and you. Join me on John Barber's World. Greatest performers from sunup to sundown. How do you keep the music playing? At last. Well, on the sea. Then, great talk all night. The mysteries of UFOs, conspiracy theories, and the true story of Las Vegas that has never been told. There are three ways to listen to KIYQ. Go to the TuneIn amp, just search for KIYQ, or go to www.kiyq.org. Listen from any telephone, call 605-477-2857. That's 605-477-2857. Long distance charges may apply. KIYQ 107.1 You're listening to BBS Radio. If it's not mainstream, it's on bbsradio.com. Those of you who have an ongoing interest in the JFK assassination might want to know about this. TV producer John Barber. He put together a dream team of JFK researchers, including Coast regular Jim Mars and uh, world-class JFK writers Dick Russell and Joan Mellon, They all got together at UNLV in front of a live audience. They had a screening of Barber's terrific, and I'd say historic, film based on interviews with uh, prosecutor Jim Garrison of New Orleans. And then after the film was shown, the experts all talked about the latest JFK theories and evidence. It's now out on a DVD. Terrific stuff. I'm George Knack, Coast to Coast AM. Okay, we're back. And now we're going to turn to the longest war in U.S. history, the war in or on Afghanistan. Although, depending on when you pin down the start of Vietnam, it might just be a couple months shy of the top spot. Either way, it's been a long, brutal slog, with the first strike launched on October 7, 2001, and U.S. airstrikes hitting targets within the last 24 hours. It certainly seems like Afghanistan is a war that will never end. And in the words of our next guest, it looks more and more like a fool's errand. That's the title of a recently published book by Scott Horton. Actually, the full title is Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. It is available on Amazon, and it established Scott's credentials as one of the most informed people on the topic, full stop. You see, somehow, in addition to hosting The Scott Horton Show, with an epic archive of over 4,500 interviews, which you can find at scotthorton.org, and in addition to serving as a managing director of the Libertarian Institute, and in addition to working as the editor of antiwar.com. 
Scott has become a living, breathing encyclopedia of the names, places, battles, and various players in the complicated, convoluted, tribal cluster you-know-what we call Afghanistan. Full disclosure, I've appeared on Scott's show a few times over the years, usually to talk about the military budget. Scott, thanks for taking the time on this auspicious or perhaps inauspicious day. Happy Memorial Day. Isn't that an odd thing to say, happy Memorial Day? It shouldn't be happy, but... I'm looking forward to talking to you about Fools, Aaron, and why we can't seem to quit Afghanistan. Welcome aboard, Scott. Thanks very much for having me. You're a great journalist and a great writer, and I always love talking with you, JP. Oh, yeah. Okay. You're going to butter me up. Okay. Yeah, man. First, why are we there? Well, I mean, I think the simplest way to boil it down would be uh, the way the military calls it, a self-licking ice cream cone. In other words, all of the incentives— Economic and bureaucratic and political and everything are geared towards staying and very few toward leaving. And so, um, you know, no particular general wants to give up his base. No particular general wants to admit that he's lost after doing his level best. Our outgoing general right now, John Nicholson, is probably the most knowledgeable American army general about Afghanistan that you could possibly have over there. He's been fighting over there almost his whole time and he's been in charge for the last few years and they're kicking him out and saying, well, we'll bring in this Delta force guy and maybe he'll figure out how to turn the whole war into one big targeted strike or something. I don't know. Um, Moab, mother of all bombs, right? Yeah. And so, and, and to any politician, you know, there's this terrible precedent was set Um, You know, Donald Trump really got it right when he said Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, they founded ISIS. Remember that during the campaign? Uh, Well, of course. And and so and people flipped out. The media flipped out. How dare you say that? That's insane. What in the world are you talking about? But then he answered and they were, you know, you know, they freaked out that he actually had an answer. And his answer was correct. That Barack Obama supported the Sunni-based insurgency starting in 2011 in Syria. And that's what led to basically the rebirth of al-Qaeda in Iraq, which became the Islamic State and invaded and conquered western Iraq in 2014. And as part of his answer, he also said, and he pulled all the troops out of Iraq. So they weren't there to prevent the blowback from his intervention in Syria. And he didn't say it quite as well as me, but pretty much he got it that much right. Wait, 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 but then, of course, out, later wait, wait, they wait, switched wait, wait, the story. Out. Time out. Right. Are you saying that that the troops actually should not have been pulled out of Iraq? No, I'm saying what I'm talking about is descriptive, not normative. Okay. The fact that Obama was backing Al Qaeda in Syria for years, and the fact that the U.S. troops were no longer in Iraq to back up the Iraqi army, meant that yes, Western Iraq was wide open to be conquered by the Islamic State. But so here's the bad part, which you already know. Nobody wants to talk about the first part of that, how Obama committed high treason for years, backing al-Qaeda, literally the men's sworn blood oath loyal to Ayman al-Zawahiri, the butcher of New York City, in, in, from 2011 all the way through until last year when Donald Trump finally called off CIA support for these terrorists. And it was Obama's support for them that led to the rise of ISIS. But that part got dropped, and instead, the new consensus is, well— 
Obama pulled the troops out of Iraq. Never mind that it was the government that Bush installed in power that said we have to leave. Never mind that it was Bush who signed the deal saying I promise we'll be out by the end of 2011. Obama pulled them out and then ISIS came and that's all you need to know. So now they take that same political framework and Trump explicitly invoked this last August in his speech announcing the new escalation, he said, you see what happens when we pull the troops out of Iraq, ISIS. So that means we can't ever pull our troops out of Afghanistan. And of course, by that logic, we can't ever pull our troops out of anywhere where there's a Sunni with a rifle. Because okay, then so, at so, that point, their militia might have a PR victory of some kind. Okay, so what we it's interesting the way you put that together because you start to see the interlocking relationship between presidencies, over the span of a number of presidencies, how these decisions are, um, are are all predicated on one another and go back, what, 16 years? Is that safe to say? That's right, because, okay, so your audience is saying, assuming that I'm right, which I am, that Obama's guilty of this treason and backing al-Qaeda in Iraq, in Syria, starting in 2011, the obvious question is, why would he do such a thing? And the answer is because Bush, in invading Iraq in 2002, empowered Iran. Now, it was supposed to give America total dominance over Iraq and the Iraqi Shiite supermajority, and they were going to help us lord it over Iran. But that's only what the neocons believed would happen. But that's stupid. That's not what happened at all. Instead, George Bush actually fought an eight-year civil war, not just on behalf of the Shiite supermajority, but those parties most loyal to Iran, the Dawa Party and the Supreme Islamic Council, and their foot soldiers as well, fought their whole civil war for them. And then, you know, it was basically a race. And Bush and his team hoped that they that the new Iraqi government and new Iraqi state would need them more than Iran. And they lost that race. They, you know, their friends, their um, their neighbors uh, from time immemorial, their co-religionists, and they have a huge part of uh, of culture in common, of course, with the Iranians. And there was just no way that that was ever going to play out. So, and also, and also, many of them were brutally suppressed by the uh, by the the Sunni minority in, in Iraq. Yeah, absolutely. In Iraq, and so. and that Sunni minority had been empowered by. What Saddam Hussein's relationship with who? Who was who kind of backed Saddam in the eighties? Oh, America, yeah, and of course the Saudis, etc. So yeah, if you want to go back to Jimmy Carter, and Ronald Reagan, we yeah, can't. no, we can get we can start doing this big. But for now, though, the important point is that Bush Jr. realized his government realized in about two thousand six, as Almain Khalilzad said, "Listen, we." We screwed up here. We we just scored a massive own goal with this war, getting rid of Saddam for the Ayatollah. It worked out exactly like it wasn't supposed to, like a lot of people predicted it would, by the way. And so then to try to make up for that fact, they turn they did what they called the Sunni turn, where they started backing some Sunni um jihadist groups and insurgent groups in Iraq, but most they started backing terrorists in in Syria and in Iran. Uh, Time out, let's explain that. This this Sunni turn, this is when money was being doled out to militia uh, leaders, Sunni militia leaders, to get them on board with the American agenda. Is that correct? 
Yeah, and of course it ended up really not working. Like it was too late for that in Iraq. All so all they succeeded in doing in Iraq was making a deal with the local tribes who'd already really turned on the jihadists and were eliminating them and had lost. You know, America basically helped the Shiites completely cleanse, uh, almost completely cleanse Baghdad of Sunnis. So they had too many enemies and kind of called off that fight. But more importantly, it was in. Uh, in a larger sense, in the region, they realized, oh, man, we just empowered Iran, who they've been independent from America since 1979, and we didn't mean to do that. So now let's – really the way to put it is let's tilt back toward the Saudis. They're our friends, and they're the ones who kind of warned us not to do this, but we wouldn't listen. Um, and so now let's tilt back toward them. But, you know, Saudi doesn't have a big field army, right? Their field army are al-Qaeda shock troops. That's who right. fights for Saudi Arabia in the world. Right. And right. so when we tilt back towards Saudi and we decide, well, we want to take on Assad because Assad is an Alawite, which is sort of kind of a, a kind of Shiite yep. and is allied with the Shiites and is allied and, you know, and it really is allied with the Sunnis, too, but is allied with Iran. Most importantly, since we can't give Baghdad back to the Sunnis and kick the Shia out and undo Iraq War II, well, let's get rid of Assad as a consolation prize. So that's the explanation. And in fact, Barack Obama himself explained this to Jeffrey Goldberg in The Atlantic in 2012. Right. The article is called As President, I Don't Bluff. Yeah, that no. was a, it was a, a wide ranging and highly insightful uh, piece by, by Goldberg. Yeah, and Goldberg, of course, is you know Israel's man in the. Well, I'm not. I mean, his motivations aside, the the con the, the text, the actual content of the interview, for for anybody who's interested in it, it's it's a fascinating read, and there are a number of insights that you can you can get away get from it. Now, this says to to Barack Obama, hey, if we got rid of Assad, that would be good for hurting Iran, right? And Barack Obama says, yes, that's exactly right. And Goldberg says, well, can we do more to see that this is successful? And he says, well, in essence, I'd tell you, but I'd have to kill you kind of thing. You don't have a high enough clearance for me to tell you what we're really doing there, Jeffrey. Wink, wink. And okay, that wait, is now you, wait, wait, now you brought up Carter, so we got. I'm going to get you. I got to get you back to Afghanistan. Because, there. Okay, because here's the playbook is that this this if you really need them, if you want to get Saudi support, you end up uh, in some way, shape or form supporting their shock troops, which is Al Qaeda out in the field. Uh, that brings us back. You brought up Carter and I brought up Brzezinski. This brings us back to the genesis of Afghanistan, which yeah. right is the is the. Um, the launching off point for what becomes it starts out as the Mujahideen, turns into Al Qaeda. And I guess now we have Donald Trump in a position similar to the position Barack Obama is in when you say that Obama committed treason. So is Donald Trump now committing treason in that same kind of interlocking, unbroken line in Afghanistan? Well, no. I mean, it, he's fighting, uh, he's not fighting for America's enemies there. I mean, when George Bush invaded Iraq and gave Western Iraq to Al Qaeda for their training ground for eight years, it was still an accident. You know, it's not what he meant to to happen. That so that that was a horrible war crime, but it it wasn't treason. What Obama did was treason. Obama was providing aid and comfort directly to people who are sworn blood oath loyal to Ayman al Zawahiri and Al Qaeda. 
And so that's treason. High treason by the technical constitutional definition. Bury him under the supermax. Now, what Donald Trump is guilty of in Afghanistan is all kinds of war crimes, killing civilians, killing people who threaten Americans in no way whatsoever. Um, but uh, he's not fighting directly on behalf of America's enemies. Now, in Yemen, he bombs al-Qaeda, but he also fights against al-Qaeda. And the, and the major lion's share of the war that America wages in Yemen is against al-Qaeda's enemies, the Houthis. And it has literally on the ground, starting with Obama in 2015, but continuing under Trump for a solid year now, has led and helped uh, lead to gains on the part of al-Qaeda guys, where they seize entire towns and therefore tax bases. They seize military bases, the literal kind of bases, and just land, uh, more and more land and weapons and everything else. And so al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula that started out as almost nothing, which Barack Obama, it was almost like he was watering them like a plant, dropping uh, drone strikes on them and growing them with each attack and each attack. Wait, wait, wait. Time out, time out when you say that. Explain that. Are you talking? But that's still not treason, right? Because no, no, that, that's just, blowback, right? That's yeah, that's- exactly. It's insurgent math, according to General McChrystal. For every one guy you kill, you get ten more. Well, for every civilian you kill, you get twenty more. And so they do these supposedly precision scalpel-like drone strikes. They kill innocent people, and they take. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which was like, I don't know, 20 guys or something, and they grow it into a real force to be reckoned with. But then Obama, in 2015, in essence, took their side by taking the war to their primary enemies in the country, the Houthis. And that is treason, again. And and Trump himself has kept that policy up for a full year. But that's part of the United States interlocking relationship with Saudi Arabia. That's right. Right. And see, look, this goes back to who attacked us on September 11th. It, now, the the axis of evil, Iran, Iraq, and Syria, not one of the hijackers no, no, were Syria, from Iran, no, no, Iraq, no, or no, Syria. No, no, the axis of evil was North Korea. Well, no, it was not. They only put North Korea in there because well, they didn't Trump want it to be too obvious that this whole policy wanted- was written in Tel Aviv and was all about the interests of Ariel Sharon's Likud party and not America at all. So they changed it. But anyway, the point is that the America's enemies in the Middle East didn't attack us. It was our allies that attacked us on September 11th. It was men from Saudi and Egypt who hated America because we were too close of friends with their governments and owned really and controlled and backed the tyrannies that they lived under. And that was why they attacked us. So when we go and are fighting on the side of our allies in the region, again, their shock troops are the people who shed civilian blood, 3,000 on 9-11, inside the United States of America. And look, Iran didn't do it, okay? Hezbollah didn't do it. Syria didn't do it. And yet we support al-Qaeda in a treasonous act against the Iranians who are only the empire's enemies but are not the enemies of the American people here at home. So what role do you think Iran plays in Afghanistan and what role do you think the grand chessboard and the desire to control the grand chessboard is catalyzing the the continuation of US involvement in Afghanistan and, and it as opposed to it just being look We've got a perpetual machine here. We don't want to give up our bases. I don't want to be the general who goes home with a loss. I don't want to be the president who goes with who gets a loss on the scorecard. To what extent do you think there's a geopolitical rationale 
uh, about controlling the, when we say the grand chessboard, we're talking about how Central Asia is often considered by, by people who do global strategy and geopolitics. It's a big Brzezinski, he's the guy who wrote the book Grand Chessboard, I think it was in 96, that mm-hmm. controlling that part of the world is integral to controlling the 21st century, the outcome of the 21st century. What role do you think that plays? Well, first of all, Iran's role in Afghanistan is backing the government that we support there. Yep. Their friends, their closest allies there are the Hazaras. And again, Saudi backs continues to back the Taliban and help the Pakistanis back the Taliban. Our allies, the Pakistanis and the Saudis too, because they fight against the Iranian-backed Hazaras that America supports in the capital city. And so now you'll hear claims lately that, that – um, the Iranians are backing the Taliban. I think that's highly doubtful. They are, highly you know, were very they bad actually, enemies in the 90s. The, together, the Iranians and the Taliban before 9-11 had practically shut down opium trade coming out across that porous border. Yeah, I mean, it could be. I mean, you know, it, honestly, there's a huge part of Herat and western Afghanistan, you know, used to be Iran was, you know, part and and is still very highly tied to Persian culture in a lot of ways. Yeah, Farsi is widely spoken. But overall, they support the Kabul government. If they support the Taliban, they said, well, only, uh, you know, one report was that they said it was just against the Islamic State, but not against the government. Uh, But overall, they backed the Hazaras, the same group that America has backed there since 2001. Now, in terms of the grand chessboard, the joke is here that these uh, brilliant, genius, graybeard theorist, foreign policy, genius guys, whatever's, they're completely stupid. And none of the things that they say make any sense at all. So in the grand chessboard is a big Brzezinski who was Jimmy Carter's national security advisor and was in charge of the Afghanistan policy beginning in 1979 and the Iran policy and the rest of this mess. Um, he in the grand chessboard explains, look, America is a Pacific and, you know, or an Atlantic, uh, but, uh, you know, we're the new world. We're, we're from, we're a naval power. So I'm trying to say, um, in the way that the British were. And so for a naval power, we can dominate the periphery of all of the landmass of what he calls the world Island, Eurasia. Right. But in order to dominate the, the world Island itself, you have to have a foothold. He says in Eastern Europe, far Eastern Europe, east of what we used to call Eastern Europe, in Ukraine. And then if you control Ukraine and you can keep it out of the hands of the Russians, then that's the key to global dominance forever. Now, that's really not true. That's completely stupid. Like, yes, there's wheat in Ukraine, but the rest of that does not hold up. But then what also doesn't hold up is he says, in order to control Ukraine, you have to control Central Asia, Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, but he never explains why. Look at a Ukraine is still like a thousand miles to the west of there. What in the world is he even talking about? And then he says, we have to be in Afghanistan. This is, as you said, 1996. He wrote it, published in 97. He says, we have to continue to support the China Pakistan Taliban axis in Afghanistan. That's right. The Bill Clinton administration helped put the Taliban in power. And we have to continue to do this in order to, guess what, keep the Iranians, the Russians, and the Indians out. Well, we've been fighting that exact opposite policy since the year 2001. We have been backing the friends of the Iranians, the Russians, and the Indians against the Taliban and their friends you know, who are backed by their friends, the Pakistanis, who are backed by the Chinese. And so, so, does so what, it, what do you think the strategic rationale is? Out or not? Pardon? 
Does it matter that the policy is now completely upside down and inside out? But no, we're... I, would, I mean, this is the question is, does it I'm asking you, does it matter? Well, right. I mean, no, that's the whole thing is what do, what do the American people get out of this at all? Right. Wait, it's wait, all... wait, but, but Scott, can you hear it? There's a trillion dollars in mineral wealth. No, nah, that's nonsense. They're, all that, all that <laughs> You're not worth. buying that, huh? Eric Prince is buying it, or he wants to buy it. Nah, look, Eric Prince is a welfare cheat. You know, he's not going to do anything that's not on the American people's public dime. There is no look at Afghanistan. It's the size of Texas. It's separated by Pakistan and a mountain range from the ocean. There's no railroads, none. There are no reliable highways anywhere. There's no security anywhere. You would need billions of dollars of investment over decades to develop those minerals, and not even China and their entire army could do it. It ain't going to happen for anyone. So has it basically become an ATM machine and a loss that nobody wants to put on their scorecard? Yeah, that's it. I'm telling you, you know what? In this book, Fire and Fury, there's two Afghanistan anecdotes, and I got to go back because I forget the first one. But the second Afghan anecdote in there, and it rings so true to me, is Dina Powell, who I'm sure you know a lot more about her than me. She's a former wow. banker who was the deputy national security advisor under McMaster uh, in you know a year ago under Trump. She's gone now. But she told the Fire and Fury author guy, she goes, look. If we leave Afghanistan, because there was a big fight over what to do last year, um, yeah. and Bannon and Trump really didn't want to do it, and McMattis and McMaster won. Um, but Dina Powell says, look, if Trump leaves Afghanistan, then he's losing a war, and Trump can't lose a war. Now, the thing about that is, is that's like Hillary Clinton level idiocy politics. That's stupid for stupid people. I mean, look at what we're talking about. We're not talking about George Bush's brother, Jeb. We're talking about Donald Trump, who does not own Afghanistan at all, who has railed against the Afghan war for years and even supported Obama when Obama finally did end the surge and faced down the generals who tried to extend it. And all he has to do is say, this is big dope Bush and big weakling Obama's fault, not my fault. And but the costs are too high to tie up these loose ends. And so it's a bad business decision and we're not going to do it. And when and you I'm say so bad business decision, to what extent? So he could do all of his absolute soul, soldier idol worship at the same time and say our military did the best job. They're the greatest heroes who ever lived, but we're ending this war. And declare, he victory, could declare victory and leave and have a big parade and say, hooray, we did it, right? Absolutely. He could have done that. And, you know, the problem is, see, Bannon agrees with that. But this he, Bannon, he's no libertarian. He's some right wing crank. So he doesn't have it in his head that this should have been the priority. This is how to really confuse the politics and shove it down the throat of the Democrats is for Trump to come in and start making peace everywhere. Invite Trump, invite Putin straight to Washington, D.C. and sign an arms agreement and then get on Air Force One and fly straight to Tehran and shake hands with the Ayatollah like Nixon did with Mao and just say America's conflicts with the rest of the world are over. We're just not doing this anymore. And he could have done that. He could have done it. Well, don't you think it's a little bit hard, particularly when it looks like two, when it looks like two of his biggest benefactors right now and a benefactor, particularly of Jared Kushner and probably Ivanka Trump, the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, because and there's a lot of money there.
Sheldon Adelson. I mean, the Israeli. I mean, there's money there. That's the thing, right? There's money. But look at what's going on in Korea, like your last interview with Tim Shorrock. If he can do this in Korea, he could do it with Beijing, with Moscow, with Tehran as well. And then we're done. And Scott, that is a great, that's a great way to end. Scott, that's a great way to end Memorial Day with a hopeful thought of world peace breaking out willy-nilly. It would be wonderful. And Scott, thank you for coming on. That is, that is uh, an, another lively half hour from one of the smartest people I know. Scott, you go to scotthorton.org, listen to any one of the 4,500 interviews. He's also available on KPFK. That's all over Southern California, right, Scott? Yes, sir. All over Southern California. And uh, again, thank you, Scott. Thanks to Tim Shorrock. And I will take a page out of the great John Barber's book, who's taking a page out of another great man's book. Folks, have, have a, I guess, a solemn Memorial Day and good night and good luck.